In a nod to Labor Day, Neil and I decided to focus today's discussion on the value of hard work. We share stories about learning to work hard and lots of favorite quotations on the principle of work and the payoff you reap from your effort with anything in life. I dive a little deeper into what life looked like as I tried to become a piano prodigy from the age of 10 to 18, and Neil shares some of his most impactful takeaways from the years he worked serving as a missionary for our church. I also just wanted to tell you guys, it means so much to us when you leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful for people discovering this podcast and for us to be able to continue to grow and bring you great episodes. I wanted to read one that I appreciated so much from Jen Fried, who says, This podcast is full of light. She says, I love this podcast and have listened to it from the beginning. I can't tell you how many aha moments I've had while listening and how many episodes I've shared with other people. Some of my favorite episodes are the ones with Greg McEwen, Cy Foster, Corinne's mom, and the episodes with Corinne and her husband, Neil. Corinne and Neil and guests share so much light, wisdom, and goodness that I finish each episode feeling more motivated to be better. This podcast is worth your time. I appreciate that so much, Jen, and everybody else who listens and shares and shares on social media and tags us and leaves a rating or review. We really appreciate you. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Neil today. Hello. And we are going to talk about a topic that I love so much, and that is the value of hard work. And this is something that Neil and I both share a love for, but in, you know, we obviously have completely different childhood experiences and life experiences. So we're just going to talk about our different experiences that we've had growing up and through adulthood and why we've learned to love hard work. And I feel like I have to start off with my grandpa Foster because he is the MVP of hard work in our family. He really just taught my dad to work really hard. And then my dad taught me, my mom taught me, um, but whenever that topic comes up, he's kind of the person that that comes up. And I feel like he has left such a legacy with our family of loving hard work. And so I want to start off with something that I think a lot of you will relate to. And it's in Genesis 3. So I find it very interesting that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, one of the first things that God says to them he gives them instruction and says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So, you know, one of the first things God says is, Okay, now you're going to have to work for it. In the Garden of Eden, I gave you all the most beautiful, delicious, wonderful things. Uh, now you're getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden and you're on your own. You got to figure it out. And from the sweat of thy brow, <laughs> is what you're going to, you know, you'll reap what you sow. So I feel like it is a divine principle that whatever you put into anything is what you get out of it. And one of my first memories of an example of learning the value of hard work is if I think all the way back to like elementary school days, I had to have been about Annabelle's age because we lived in Spokane, Washington. And so we moved there when I was almost eight. So exactly Annabelle's age. And we lived there till I was about 10. So somewhere between eight and 10 years old. And there was this like overhang that cast this really dark shadow on the kitchen. And my mom hated it. It was like, it it was pretty long. And I don't know if it was meant to be kind of a patio shading or what, but 
one time my mom went out of town for the weekend. She probably went to visit her parents because, or her mom, um, her dad had passed away, but her mom lived in Seattle. So it was just, you know, a, I think like five or six hour drive. So she probably went to see her mom and we were there for the weekend with my dad and my dad just decided to get up on the roof and just saw this thing off, like just cut off this big overhang that made the kitchen so dark. And so after he did that, there were all of these shingles from the roof that had nails on them. And I think I think my dad just looked at this pile of shingles and this pile of wood. And instead of just hauling it right off, he looked at it as an opportunity for me to work. So every day after school for, it seemed like months on end, it could have been like two weeks, but in my little, you know, universe of eight to 10 years old, however old I was, it felt like months. I had to go out in the backyard and there were all these shingles that he had taken off of the roof and they had nails and he made me use um, a hammer and hammer the nails flat so that they weren't sticking up. And it was just like torturous, painful, long sweat, driving hard work. And it just taught me to, you know, stick to a task, work hard, which I know Neil's going to talk about in a second. But um, it's just one of my earliest memories of having to do something that was grueling. And it just taught me the value of being able to look at something after. And even though I hated it, feeling accomplished, feeling like, oh my gosh, I did that. Like that pile of wood became a source of pride and a source of feeling like I had really accomplished something by the time I finally got through that whole stack and nailed down all of those or hammered down all of those nails flat. So Neil, what are some of your earliest memories of working hard? Um, I think one summer my parents lived on like a third acre lot. And so with this huge backyard and half of it, they still do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which it's just, it's awesome as a kid, but it's just an enormous amount of work. And so half of it at the time in the backyard was dirt, which was awesome because we would just build like these bike tracks and like ride our, ride our bikes and motorcycles back there. But, um, but it didn't look great. And so my, one of my older brothers worked for a landscaping company at the time. And so my parents decided to put in a sprinkling system and lay sod over the better, the, the majority of it that summer. And so I was probably, I don't know, second grade or so, third grade, just a little kid. And it was like a hundred degrees outside. It was in Utah. And so it's just hot. And we went out there and we dug trenches for the sprinkling system. I was laying sod. Um, it was just kind of backbreaking hard work, but it was, it was awesome. It taught me how to, you know, apply myself and both my parents come or they basically grew up farming. Um, my mom was was a dairy farmer, and then my dad grew up in New Zealand and then moved to Samoa, where they lived on a banana plantation. And so they had to just go out there and maintain this banana plantation, and that was kind of their source of income. And so they both were just extremely hard workers. So looking at a situation with a big yard and things to do, we always had, we were always cutting down trees or landscaping or just doing or just maintaining the property to mowing my lawn took like three or four hours on a Saturday because it just took forever. But I look at those times and, you know, in the heat and just the physical manual labor, I learned to appreciate and love that 
and and feel just good about myself and um, be able to do things that were hard, that were difficult, that were not easy, and mentally get get the mental fortitude built up to be able to take on big tasks. And that's been a huge blessing to me in my life, um, learning that at an early age. And it's something that we're trying to instill in our kids now. <laughs> trying, yes. I always feel like, gosh, my parents did this so much better than I did. But we definitely are trying to teach our kids to work hard and to feel good about themselves after they've cleaned something up or completed a project. And, you know, someday we'll require them to get an actual job too. And I think there's so much value there. My first job was with my grandpa Foster, who I mentioned a second ago, um, cleaning his law offices. And at the time, my dad and my uncle Brett and my grandpa Foster all shared this law office. And I think they had one or two other associates that worked there. But my grandpa owned the building. And so he hired me. I went in and asked for a job formally. He hired me and he paid me in quarters. I think he paid me a dollar an hour or maybe $2 an hour. No, he paid me a dollar. This is what happened. He paid me a dollar an hour. And then I think that I found out that he was paying my half uncles to shred paper um, more than I was getting paid to clean the offices. So then I went and asked him, and I, I think I mentioned it to my dad. And this was a, I think my dad just looked at it and said, this is a perfect opportunity for a real life scenario where you go in and ask for a raise. So I went to my grandpa and said, I think I, I and I'm sure I practiced this speech with my dad, but I still remember walking into his big office and he had stacks of books everywhere and stacks of files and papers everywhere. And he was sitting behind his big desk. And I remember asking him for a raise from a dollar to $2. And he looked it's at me. It's a significant and, raise. That's exactly what that. he said. This, he looked at no. me and he said, well, Corinne, that's a hundred percent raise. That's amazing. I didn't even know what that meant. And I remember just little me sitting there kind of terrified. I was 10 years old. Okay. 10 years old asking him for this raise. Of course, though, he gave it to me and continued to pay me in quarters. I'm not sure what the quarter thing was, but he paid me in quarters. And I remember that I wanted a boombox, like such a child of the 90s. I wanted this boombox so bad. And so I kept saving my quarters and saving my quarters. And I knew exactly how much it cost and how much it was going to take for me to buy this boombox. And I finally had earned enough money at some point. And my mom took me to Costco and we picked out the boom box and I went to the cashier and I still remember picking up my Ziploc bag of quarters and just setting it down on the counter and the cashier just looking at me like, are you serious? <laughs> but I paid for that boom box and quarters in full. And it's still a great memory that I have of you know, working hard for something, saving for it, planning for it, and feeling like all those Saturdays that I showed up to my grandpa's law office and cleaned that place top to bottom and dusted everything and and Windexed everything. And he was old school and had me use ammonium on all the floors. And, you know, I would just sweat and work and scrub that it was all worth it for that boom box. There's a quote that actually reminds me of um, on my mission at a missionary companion. You're, you're paired up with like another missionary in your two-year term when you go out to teach the gospel in our church. And um, I had, you, you really, you hang, you spend a lot of time with these guys and you really are influenced. And so I had a missionary companion that I just 
loved, I, I learned a lot from, and he, he changed my life, changed a lot of things for me. Um, but he loved, there was, there was a quote that he loved. It was by Vaughn J. Featherstone, who's a leader um, in our church, but it's on desire. And it kind of reminded me of when you told, when you're talking about the boombox story, it reminded me of this quote. Um, it says, if you want a thing bad enough to go out and fight for it, work day and night for it, give sleep and time for it, if only the desire of it makes your aim strong enough never to tire from it, if life seems all empty and useless without it, if all that you dream and you scheme is about it, if you'd gladly sweat for it, fret for it, plan for it, pray with all of your heart and, and your soul for it, you'll simply go after the thing that you want with all of your capacity, strength, and veracity, faith, hope, confidence, stern pertinacity, if poverty nor cold, nor famish nor gaunt, nor sickness or pain to your body or brain can keep you from reaching your aim, if dogged and glim you besiege and beget it, you'll get it. So it just comes back to that idea of when there's a desire in you, the, the power of a positive desire and, and thought coupled together and focus and having a specific goal in mind. And I, I immediately think of the, the book, think and grow rich. And a lot of these principles that um, are talked about in that book have to do with setting a goal, setting a plan, building up the desire, um, being specific, and then applying that desire. And that's, these are principles that, you know, we can use in our life to accomplish great things. Yeah. And I go back to, I th or I think back to God's first instruction to Adam and Eve and saying, okay, here you go. By the sweat of your brow, you'll, you'll earn you know, whatever you need. And I, I don't think he did that to make them miserable. I think he knew this would be good for them and, and that learning to work was going to create a more fulfilled, happy life than just being handed everything, right? And I, I look at my kids and how they do just beam with pride after they accomplish something and they want that attention. They want, they're seeking that validation of, look at me, I did something hard and I, got it all done. And I think that within all of us, we feel so much just validation. It's like self-worth and accomplishment when we can, you know, do something really hard. And also back to the point of, in the beginning of that quote, there was something about, read it again, the very beginning. There's something about like something that you want really bad. What does it say? If you want a thing bad enough to go out and fight for it, work day and night for it, give sleep and time for it. If only the desire of it makes your aim strong enough never to tire from it. If life seems all empty and useless without it. If all that you dream and you scheme is about it. If you gladly sweat for it, fret for it, plan for it, pray with all of your heart and your soul for it. That's about half of it. You want me to Okay, <laughs> no, no. But just if you want something bad enough and you'll work hard enough for it, it just reminded me when you were reading it of, doing the 12 steps and of how I think we see a lot of people come into recovery meetings, into 12 step meetings, and they want a quick solution. They want, and, and I wanted this, and I think you wanted this. They want someone to be like, okay, here's what you do. And it all goes away. And you just like say these magic words, or you just, you know, take this pill or do this miracle thing and your addiction will just go away. Or all of the pain of being married to someone who's had an addiction with years of pain, um, associated with that, like that's all going to just disappear by doing one or two little things. And it's not that easy. You have to put the work into it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think when people come into recovery, they they do. They want that quick solution. But I remember looking at the 12 steps when I started them and saying, I want full credit for these. I'm going to do these so thoroughly because I need this to work. And I had heard people talk about kind of dabbling in the steps or reading the steps or half doing them, and then it didn't work. And I just looked at that and said, I don't want that to be me. I am going to... I'm going to give this a shot and I'm going to give it 100% my best shot to see if it can actually work for me because I was so tired of feeling weighed down from being codependent about, you know, the the fallout of your addiction affecting our marriage and so I and I got that. I got that and then some. I feel like because I did the hard work of each of those steps really uh, applying myself and really doing each step so thoroughly that the blessings came, you know, times a million. What is your experience, Benyel, either for you or just also people you've sponsored or that you've observed in the 12-step program over the years? Yeah. Um, there's a phrase that I really like in recovery that I used to say in one of my meetings, but um, it, it says at the end of the meeting, they would say, keep coming back. It works when you work it. So work it. You're worth it. So the, just the concept is it works when you work it. And that has been my experience is for myself and for others. I, I mean, this is a, a bold statement, but I what I've seen, it works like a hundred percent of the time when people work it or when mm-hmm. I've worked it, the trouble comes is when you stop working a program. And every time I ask somebody where, when I've relapsed or somebody else has relapsed, I'm always interested. I'm like, okay, tell me what happened. Not like from a standpoint of like, tell me what happened. Like, what's up? Why'd you go out? Um, but more <laughs> of a, like what happened? Like, so that I can know what I need to watch for in my own program. And I think every time it's always, well, I'm basically, I stopped working. I stopped mm-hmm. going to meetings. I stopped reaching out and talking to people. I stopped praying. I stopped reading my scriptures. All of these things they did to get sober. I stopped working the steps. I stopped, I stopped, I stopped. Um, all of those things, they stopped doing them. And then inevitably it, it leads to a relapse. And so Basically, the big book talks about receiving a daily reprieve based off of maintaining a fit spiritual condition. So maintaining implies that there's something that I've got to do or or you have to do. And so it requires a lot of work and continual, like continued sustained work. And like I said, a hundred percent of the time, like, yeah, you know, for, for my story, there's a lot of relapse riddled in there and there's other people that I know that have, have relapse riddled in the, in their story. Eventually it works. Eventually it comes together. But I think the the problem is, the temptation is, is there's such a, a strong pull to just stop working or stop doing the things that are bringing spiritual strength in and, and bringing the solution into your life. It's hard work. And after a while, you either get complacent, you're like, yeah, I'm feeling good, it's okay, which is usually what happens. Or it's just like, man, life life gets in the way and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I just am too busy to, to take care of my spiritual being. And so you stop doing the things that work for you and, and that's 
the the end road is you go out. Yeah. To explain a couple of Neil's phrases that he's using, when he says you go out, it means like someone goes out and uses their, they go out of the program, they're, they relapse. And also when he says 100% of the time it works, what he means is when, and we've talked about this so many times, when we see people show up to the meeting and they take the 12 steps seriously and they do the steps, they actually work the program with a sponsor and they keep coming back every week. Those people get sober and stay sober every single time. It works. It's it's a fail-proof method if you're willing to put in the work. But it's like Neil's saying, so many people end up slipping, relapsing because they stop trying. They stop doing the work. They stop putting it, you know. And so anyway, I just, when you read that quotation, I thought about my experience with the 12 steps and feeling like I want this so bad. I'm willing to do anything. And then when I did it, it worked. And then some, you know, it was like a hundred times what I expected. So I want to read a quotation too, from one of my heroes that you guys hear me talk a lot about Gordon B. Hinckley. He says in his book that I love so much standing for something in Uh, the chapter about thrift and industry, he talks about work. And I know if you know President Hinckley too, you know that he also loves hard work. So he says, I believe in the gospel of work. Work is the miracle by which talent is brought to the surface and dreams become reality. There's simply no substitute under the heavens for productive labor. It is the process by which idle visions become dynamic achievements. I suppose that we're all inherently lazy. We would rather play than work. We would rather loaf than work. A little play and a little loafing are good, but it is work that spells the difference in the life of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. Children who are taught to work and to enjoy the fruits of that labor have a great advantage as they grow toward maturity. The process of stretching our minds and utilizing the skills of our hands lifts us from the stagnation of mediocrity. Nothing of real substance comes without work. I love that so much because I feel like it's so true that It's easy to look at someone like Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or um, I don't know who else. I mean, seriously, athletes, musicians, you know, people who have been really successful in work or in a career, any type of career, really, and be like, oh, they're so talented or they, you know, that came easy to them. I really believe that behind any of those people is you know, certainly extraordinary talent, but that part of it is maybe 15 or 20%. And the rest of it, the 80% that's left over is just hard freaking work. It's someone who's willing to get up and do the extra work. And even last week's episode with Summer Wilkinson, and she talked about being on Navarro Cheer and and that even doing double practices every day and carrying a school load and and trying to get good grades, she would still, of her own accord, show up to the gym and do extra tumbling and extra practicing. And that's just like the mark of someone who is achieving really great things is someone who's willing to just go the extra mile. I'm waiting for some talk about piano. I'm oh. waiting for it. I okay. really have such a great experience. Usually I don't I want to flip the interview on you, but I'm I'm just waiting for some piano. Well, I think that 
I, I mean, Neil will talk about this all the time that I can sit and just work to death on like a Black Friday or um, when we do anniversary sale or things like that. It's funny, like I, we almost have like these two different realms because we show up here and do the podcast. We talk about spiritual things, but then I have this other side of the business where we do these deals and we work really hard to find deals. And um, I work with an incredible team and they all are hard workers. And, but Neil will always say, you have the ability to do something that a lot of people aren't able to or willing to do. And I do think it stems from the years of hard work in piano. So basically how that happened is I, well, let's start from the beginning, the little quote unquote talent part. And I think that kids are drawn to certain things. And if you read the book, um, gosh, what is that book called about um, the strengths? It's like the strengths Strengths finder. finder. And, you know, certain people are just a little more apt to being talented in certain venues or certain veins or whatever. And it talks about Michael Jordan and how he was so talented as a basketball player. And then he tried to do golf and it was kind of like, okay, let's, let's go back to what you're really good at. And my parents were good at helping me identify that. I was super drawn to the piano. My mom still will tell me that she would take me to Nordstrom and I would just stand next to the piano player back when they had a live piano player in every store. And I would just be fascinated by the piano player, you know, just playing and playing and playing. And as a young kid who wanted to run around and do typical young kid things and pull clothes off the hangers and stuff, if we were in Nordstrom, I would just stand there and be mesmerized by the pianist who was playing. So, and I would beg my parents for piano lessons from a young age. And they kept saying, no, when you're older, when you're mature enough, when you're eight, we'll buy a piano. So finally at eight, they finally bought a piano and I loved it. And I loved playing the piano. I really had an affinity toward that. And then when we moved to Utah, my dad found out about a piano teacher who was really incredible. Her name was Bonnie Gritton, and she was the head of the piano department at the University of Utah. So he got me in to have an audition with her, and she only took a couple students on per year. She was, instead of having a ton of students, she only had kind of a small book of students that she worked intensely with for years. So she saw something in me when she heard me play this like simplified version of Dances with Wolves and saw some type of potential for talent and took me on. And I will forever be grateful for that. And then she started teaching me classical music. And from age 10 until 18, I studied with her and it was intense. Like Once I started studying with her, I really didn't go to another full day of school. I would always do early release time. So I would do the basic core curriculum that I needed to do in school. And then I would come home for release time and practice the piano. And and this was always me wanting to do this. My parents frequently throughout my childhood would sit me down and say, okay, this has to be something you want. We're not going to force you to do this. This isn't us, you know, being like you know, crazy parents making you do something you don't want to do. And I would always say, yes, yes, I want it. I really want to be the best at something. And, and, you know, I did a little bit of softball. I was terrible at that. I did a little bit of basketball. I was terrible at that. I did ballet and I was okay at that. But I think when my parents saw that I really had this love and talent for piano, they said, okay, let's, let's give you the best opportunity we can get you the best teacher, get you the best instrument. And then let you take off and see, you know, see what you can do with this. And I learned to work 
really hard at playing the piano. And that was a combination of my parents saying, okay, if we're going to, if we're going to pay for this, you have to show up and you have to do the work. You have to sit at the piano for the amount of hours that your teacher's recommending. And you have to practice if we're going to pay for this, if we're going to be invested in this. And then my teacher just demanded excellence of me. And I still remember there was a piano lesson that I went to and she was trying to correct my hand position, which if you've played piano, you know that your hand should be in like, kind of like a, all your fingers should be curved. And it's really important for developing that strong hand position and good technique, basically, so that when you're playing more difficult pieces down the road, you're not having problems with tendonitis or, or with, um, you know, not being able to play as fast as you could because you have poor hand position. So she tried to correct me. She tried to correct me two or three weeks in a row. Or maybe it was even more, but I just remember one lesson. I was up at the University of Utah in her office and she was teaching me and she stopped me in the middle and she said, I want you to go home right now and fix that hand position and don't come back to your next lesson unless it's fixed. So I don't, I don't even want to see you next week unless you fix this. Goodbye. And she just kicked me out of my lesson and I went home and I worked so hard because I didn't want to lose my spot with her. And that's just, she just demanded excellence from us. And she didn't hand a lot of compliments out. And, but when I got them, I knew I had earned them. And there was one time where I knew I had played perfectly in a piano competition. And it was like a 15 minute concerto that I played and played and played. And then, and she watched me in this competition. She didn't show up to every competition, but for whatever reason, she was at this particular one. And she told me after, you know, something to the effect of that was, you know, you did a great job and, and that was perfect. And then she followed it up with, and I expect you to do this every time now. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just kind of how she was. But that, I mean, we're talking by the time I was in junior high, I was practicing three to five hours a day. And then in high school, it was like three to five hours a day in during the school year and eight hours a day in the summer. That's how intense this was trying to prepare for these piano competitions and learn 30 minute concertos and have all of this music memorized. And the memorization was like the easiest part. Wow. I'm really just going off, aren't I? Well, cause it's but a great story. Like this is fascinating to me. Um, it, I just feel like this, this was the foundation, even though I don't play the piano at that level anymore, not even close. Like there's just not a day in the week that I could sit down and play to the level that I used to play. I would have to put the work back in. I would have to be practicing minimum an hour or two a day to pick back up some of these pieces that I used to be able to sit down and flawlessly play. But it taught me just some incredible determination and focus and being able to sit down and and work hard at something for hours and hours and, and be determined to perfect something. And you do have to have a little bit of a crazy parent. We, (laughs) in some ways, I mean, my parents will hear this and, and laugh a little because hopefully they'll understand within this context. But we had a guy in our last church congregation who was like a, he was a scout, like a professional baseball scout. And he told us one time with every kid that becomes a professional athlete, there's always at least one crazy parent, one person who's a little <laughs> bit crazy enough to push their kid to do extraordinarily hard work. And I say that with so much love and appreciation because I look at my parents 
and how they were. And, and again, they always left it up to me. They always said, you have to want this. But when I said, yes, I want it. And then they put in the dollars and they put in the time to drive me to all the lessons. Then they expected that I also would show up and do the hard work. And they held me to that. And I am so grateful for it because I think that it has spilled out in all areas of my life in being willing to work extra, extra hard. And I, and I think back to even things that you and I did together in the beginning of our marriage where I was, I got creative about wanting a cute kitchen. And I said, let's save everything that we get from any of the, you know, money that we get from wedding gifts and put it all toward granite countertops. And I wanted that so bad. And we, we went out and shopped and thrifted and found the very best deal on granite countertops that we could afford. And then I made Neil do, we painted the cabinets in our kitchen. And then I made forever. It took, I seriously think we were both working full time at the time and we We would come home. Yes. We'd come home from work, immediately put our paint clothes on. And I think it took three weeks Yeah, every single so night to refinish them till uh, like midnight. Every night we yeah. would paint and we had to do, cause it was like dark chestnut cabinets that we were painting white. So I think it took us three total coats of, and there were a lot of cabinets. Like primer alone. Yeah, right. Primer nice. and then three coats of white paint. So it took us like three weeks, but I was so proud of that kitchen that we remodeled ourselves. And then I made Neil do tile backsplash. And um, it wasn't perfect, but it was so cute. And then it was such a blessing too. Like when we felt that prompting to move to California a few years later and Dave put our house on the market for us. And I remember him saying, okay, this is a competitive industry or a competitive market right now. There's six other houses within a block on the market that have been sitting here for X amount of months. And I think that that you know, sweat and toil of the kitchen. It was the cutest kitchen on, on the block that was for sale. And our house sold within 30 days. Some of that was Dave's talent because he was just an incredible realtor. But also I think that sweat and toil of us remodeling that kitchen ourselves paid off, you know, not only for our own enjoyment, but being able to sell the house quickly. And so going back to anything that as a value, anything that you're really going to love and appreciate, most likely it's going to be tied to also putting in a lot of hard work. And that's why we love our kids so much too, right? Because they're, they're pain in the butt. They're so much work, but they, you know, that's why we love them so deeply because we work so hard for them. I'm going to finish off with just this quote. So this is a quote by a previous president of our church, Thomas Monson. Um, and I, I love this. It's a little poem, but it, but it says, stick to your task till it sticks to you. Beginners are many, but enders are few. Honor, power, place, and praise will always come to the one who stays. Stick to your task till it sticks to you. Bend at it, sweat at it, smile at it too. For out of the bend and the sweat and the smile will come life's victories after a while. I love that so much. And I just, in closing, I think it is such an important value to learn, to appreciate, to teach our children. And so on Labor Day today, I hope that you um, are coming away with some fond memories of things that times in your life when you've worked hard at something and um, some inspiration to teach your kids and to work hard and to stick to 
whatever goal or task or thing that you really want, that if you work hard, you can achieve it. I'll end with this. I think um, I, this is such a great topic. There's so much more. I'm just going to finish with one last one last quote. Lots lots of quotes in this one. This is another one from my, my mission companion that was just a, such a good example of hard work. But he says, uh, this is from James W. Ritchie. Um, he says, legends make and usually achieve goals. That's why there are legends. Some people look back and see what they could have become, but legends look ahead and decide what they are going to do and become, and then they go and do it. Remember, all of God's children are legends in embryo. Now become one. So I'll just leave it with that, but um, lots of great stories and content in this episode, and hopefully you got got something out of it that will inspire you to go out and and set a goal and and achieve it and put in the work and uh, see the results that come from it. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.